0: This podcast covers all things health, your body, your brain, and your well-being. Each week, we'll be joined by doctors as well as the occasional guest to talk about the health topics that mean the most to you.
1: This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. Before we hear that conversation, a quick check-in. Have you subscribed to our show yet? Take a second if you can and make sure so you don't miss any of our great episodes. Thank you. Today, we wanted to talk about sexual health, intimacy, and cancer survivorship. Sexual health is crucial to our well-being across the board, regardless of whether or not we're living with other health conditions. But it's not something we commonly speak to our healthcare providers about. And that's particularly true for people who are undergoing cancer treatment or living as cancer survivors. Today we'll explore what sexual health means, intimacy, body image, questions around cancer survivorship from diagnosis to post-treatment and beyond. But first let me introduce my guest, Dr. Sage Bolte. She's chief philanthropy officer and president of the Inova Health Foundation. A certified sex therapist and respected leader in the field of oncology social work, Dr. Balti is nationally recognized for her expertise in sexual health and cancer. Welcome to the WebMD Health Discovered podcast, Dr. Balti. I am
2: so glad to be here. Thank you so much for having me and to WebMD for bringing this critical topic and conversation forward.
1: I am really, really excited to begin. But before we do, I'd love to ask our guests about their aha moment. So the moment that made them realize that this is the work that they wanted to do. So what brought you to this work?
2: I love this question. And I actually have two aha moments that connect. So my first aha moment, I was in my first job in community mental health post-undergraduate work and had a caseload of about 20 severely mentally ill individuals. The majority of them were young men under the age of 25, newly diagnosed with schizophrenia. And I realized, almost being their age, that no one was talking to them about the very normal things that people were talking to me about at that age related to relationships, building intimacy, navigating this young adult world, talking about their sexual health, and in many ways back then, there was a lot of shaming and pushing of we don't talk about that with them that's not how this works and so that was my first aha moment of there seems to be a disconnect in the medical and psychiatric community around sexual health sexual function sexuality someone's sexual identity and illness. And then in my graduate work, I was working in a radiation department in Detroit and certainly a very diverse community there that I fell in love with. And as I began around my third week there in my internship, I noticed that we had a very large number of head and neck cancer patients with significant facial deformity and disfigurement and no one was addressing how that made them feel about their bodies, how it made them interact with their loved ones, the smells that came along with it, the inability to kiss in the same ways. And there was a patient that I'll never forget who was what I would say courageous enough to ask, what does this mean about kissing? Am I contagious? how does this work now that my face doesn't work in the same way? So that was my aha moment of if our physicians and healthcare providers are not talking about it, I'm going to dive in and go for it.
1: It strikes me as you're talking that so much of what we do in the office is condition centered and disease centered. And it's sort of like, this is what I'm here to talk about. And as a provider, I've got this checklist of things. And unless it's on your checklist or if you feel like it's almost like a secondary issue that is not as important as what I think is important to talk about in this appointment, we just don't get to it.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I always say when I'm talking to patients, please don't fault your providers for not bringing this forward. You know, they are taught to focus on managing your condition and getting you through this disease. And that's really important. Certainly, there's opportunities as providers to grow our understanding and ability to assess our patients' needs outside of their just checklist issues. The two areas I love to talk about, sex and death, are just not ones that we spend a lot of time teaching our clinicians about and how to approach and talk to our patients about. Again, it's such a wonderful area to be able to dig in and and share some expertise and hopefully encourage those who are struggling to find some help and hope. We'll be back after a quick break.
1: If we have these conversations about life and what brings us joy, particularly around sex and intimacy, where you can still feel like a whole person, those conversations can be so much more uplifting in some ways than some of the conversations that we generally have. So it's almost like for the benefit and well-being of both provider and the patient, it's such an important conversation to have.
2: Absolutely. I often say if we could just as providers incorporate one question, just like we've learned to do with pain and asking about quality of life and bowel movements, you know, if we could just incorporate one question into our everyday routine questions for our patients, such as, you know, I really care about your whole health and your whole well-being, your sexual health is a part of that. On a scale of one to five, how satisfied are you with your sexual health? It's such a simple question and could make such a difference in the lives of our patients.
1: And it's interesting because oftentimes, and particularly when it comes to cancer treatment and the aftermath of cancer treatment, a lot of what we've done to you or what we've given to you as treatment is responsible for or it plays some role in sexual health concerns or changes in intimacy. And so it feels like it's even more important for us to be asking these questions.
2: It is rated in the top 10 of quality of life concerns of cancer survivors. We know that people diagnosed with cancer experience distress, which is anxiety and depression, 15 to 25% greater than those who don't have a cancer diagnosis. And so again, the quality of life aspects influence everything in their day-to-day, both during treatment, which influences outcomes, as well as after treatment and survivorship when they're thinking, now I'm done, but really now I'm just starting, right? My life is just trying to be made sense of, I'm just trying to figure out how this new body works, how I'm going to live post
1: disease. And what are some of the concerns that you often see described when it comes to sexual health or intimacy because of cancer treatments or what you've experienced with your cancer diagnosis?
2: One of the things I think is really important to just identify is that experiences of people who have been diagnosed with cancer varied based on their treatment, and that can come from surgery, that can come from hormone treatment, that can come from chemotherapy, it can come from photon or proton therapy. There's a lot of the treatments we provide that influence someone's sexual health, and that can range from common side effects that we often don't tie to sexual health, like fatigue, right? If you want to be sexually active, you need energy to do so. If you want to be intimate and not sexually intimate, just carry an intimate relationship with your family or your friends, you need energy to do so. Dry mouth, a really common side effect of chemotherapy, influences willingness or comfort with kissing, which is a critical part of couples and their sexual intimacy. When I think about beyond just the common side effects, it is common to get an SSRI to manage some of the depression and anxiety that is so normal for people to experience during a cancer diagnosis, and that can further exacerbate sexual health concerns. It can delay orgasm or create maybe the experience of anorgasmia, not being able to have an orgasm. It may delay ejaculation, and that can be very distressing. Additionally, just the common side effects of cancer treatment, it is very normal to experience vulvovaginal changes, which for those who identify as women or have a vagina can be in incredibly distressing, not only with intercourse, whether that is oral or penetrative intercourse, but also in going back to their gynecologist for an exam, there can be tremendous pain associated with that because often just like the body dries out, the vagina does as well. And the vulva and vagina are affected by those treatments and so can have narrowing of the vaginal canal, which is called vaginal stenosis if someone is thrown into an acute menopause, you know, a 35 year old who hasn't had the opportunity or time to naturally age through a menopausal process can quickly experience vaginal changes that are uncomfortable, not just vaginal dryness, but again, vaginal stenosis. And for others, the sensation changes that happen, whether that's breast alteration or if there's scarring, that becomes very sensitive. We also aren't thinking about how a scar or something keloids and it's painful to be touched, how that also influences the person's ability, willingness, or comfort with interacting with their selves sexually or if they have a partner with them. and. For those who have a penis, erectile function is something that is commonly impacted and whether that's from the emotional distress, whether that's from surgery, whether that's from the treatment itself. And it's not just those who have cancer of a sex organ that these influence, which I think is an important point to make, but really all cancers. And the experience of decreased erection for some men at post-prostatectomy, they talk about noticing that their penis is shorter, which for some can be incredibly distressing and add to body image issues. You know, the overall stress of if they're in a coupleship, how that partner interacts with that person's body is a whole other layer that is influenced by a cancer diagnosis
1: as you were talking, there are a couple of things that came up for me. Even if I'm not necessarily going to offer a treatment, I might say to a patient, by the way, this medication could cause erectile dysfunction.
2: Yeah. And what often happens when it's not identified is there's an internalization by the patient that something's wrong, right? Or I'm broken. I've heard that from so many patients feeling like, because sex is painful and they weren't told the why that they were gonna experience vaginal dryness, that they were gonna have vaginal stenosis, that they can fix it. The experience of the patient is I feel broken, I'm unfixable, this cancer is gonna be with me forever. So from a provider standpoint, you know, I would say, yes, recognizing when there's a risk factor is important and certainly keep doing that. I would challenge us as providers in oncology to think of sexual health in everything we do. So again, if it is fatigue, how does that impact their intimacy, their relationships? If it's a medication that might decrease blood flow, that's gonna have an impact. If it's something that is gonna have additional side effects like nausea, nausea is absolutely a deterrent to wanting to be or feel sexual and so if as providers we can say you're going to feel kind of crappy for the next few weeks let's talk about ways that you can stay connected to yourself and your partner or your partners so that intimacy can be maintained because sex may not be important to you while you feel crummy but intimacy is going to be a critical part of your journey and your healing and feeling like you have people around you who take care of you So even if we can just as providers integrate, again, that quality of life view mindset of how do we normalize and empower our patients to think about intimacy and sexual health as just another part of their quality of life. We would make huge strides in normalizing and freeing up these people from carrying, you know, tremendous burdens and their partners carrying a tremendous burden of feeling like I'm never going to be normal again or he or she is never going to touch me again. Right. Or we're never going to be sexually intimate again. So there's such power in the way that we as providers can speak to our patients.
1: And I think that also in ourselves as patients or caregivers to patients or loved ones of patients to acknowledge that intimacy works both ways, that if we want to have intimacy with our loved one who's going through this or we are someone who's going through a cancer diagnosis, that this is an important conversation to have. It doesn't just have to be around, you know, what's the next stage in treatment and who's going to do the dishes or who's going to feed the family, that this is a key conversation to have. And it's okay to have it.
2: And it's really important. And I often find that this is a scary conversation for some people to have. It creates anxiety. They're worried that if they ask questions of their partner, like, do you still find me attractive? They're going to hear no. They might worry if they ask their providers anything I can do, they might hear no. So the disempowerment to a feeling like, I'm not going to hear that there's a solution or that there's an opportunity to correct this. Or even more so, I hear often, I know this should be the last thing on my mind, but this idea that these really important quality of life issues, intimacy, sexual health, are less important than managing all the other things. I've heard even, I should just be grateful I'm alive and not complain about this, but they have a long life ahead of them. You know, many people have such a long life now that we've found such incredible treatments for cancer.
1: And I think that that is a really great point when it comes to the age at diagnosis as well. Some of this comes back to bias in the healthcare system of maybe where you might raise this question proactively versus needing to sort of, as the patient, be the one to bring it up but I think age at diagnosis and recognizing that a lot of cancer diagnoses these days can continue on as chronic conditions and allow us to live the same length of life that we would have without that cancer diagnosis. So how do we think about that and the sort of age bias as well?
2: It's a great question. And speaking as someone who worked in the young adult oncology world for so many years, it's something that I would see great disparities in, you know, from the 18 year old, who the physician might not be ready to talk about sexual activity to the 35 year old who is married, and they were ready to talk about it. Also, when you're single, some of the ways this shows up for our patients is, if a person is single, Oftentimes, it is an overlooked conversation because there is an assumption that that person is not sexually active. If we can change our mindset on anything, let's change our mindset on that. There are a lot of people that choose to be single and are either very sexually active with themselves or have partner or partners outside of being in a committed relationship. Aging, in general, changes our sexual bodies, and I would see somebody that is elderly also experiencing an ageist reaction, thinking that they're not having sex, that anyone over the age of 65 is not interested in being sexually active because, oh, she's already been through menopause or he's already struggled with erectile disorder. And it's an unfortunate and missed opportunity and assumption that leads to continued misinformation and disinformation for our patients. And again, it reinforces that their sexual health is not actually part of their quality of life, that getting them to live is good enough.
1: It's interesting when you have these conversations, particularly where you assume that it's going to be taboo to raise this topic, and that's really just an assumption on your end, whether that's because of some cultural norm that you assume in in the patient in front of you or the loved one or, you know, the friend in front of you, or as you said, just these expectations around age or being partnered and whether or not this is a conversation worth having with someone.
2: Yeah, the cultural components, you know, as I teach other clinicians, it's one of our greatest gifts to our patients is just to ask the question, help me understand, or tell me a little bit more about, right? So if I'm unsure about how someone's religious views influence their sexual practices or their identity or how they express themselves sexually, I'm gonna ask that question, just like I would ask, how's your pain been? Or tell me how you manage pain, or tell me about your family. In the same way, if I wonder about how culture influences, I can go in with curiosity and it's not gonna offend my patient. In fact, oftentimes it provides another layer of connection and trust. So if you are the patient, even being willing to bring forward that information that here is where my religious beliefs might limit my ability to practice some of the things that you're telling me to do. Or my culture frowns on that or embraces that and allow that to be a conversation as well. Unfortunately, it is up to many of our patients still to be our best educators. We'll be back after a quick break.
1: Here is a quick word from our sponsor.
0: We take this few seconds off to inform you, our valued loyal listener Join us every week as we continue to provide you the best of health and fitness wellness updates from around the globe. Enjoy the show.
2: And now, back to our episode.
1: One of the things I wonder about also is just setting up that safe space to have that conversation. So I think a lot of times people will come with someone in their support system because they don't want to miss anything and they don't want to miss information about their treatment or, you know, next steps. And that's not always the most comfortable space to have this type of conversation. So what are some ways people can set themselves up to have this discussion with their healthcare provider in the best way that is gonna be the safest way for them to have this conversation?
2: I would first start with how do they have a conversation with themselves or their partner and identify, are they grounded in what is real to them or real to their partner? So to make sure that if it's a real issue, they're bringing it forward. And if it's just a them issue, they're bringing it forward. So a couple issue versus individual issue. And that I often will say, start with a fact, then state a belief, then your feeling, and then an action. And so ever since my breast cancer diagnosis, you stopped touching me. That's a fact. Then you state the belief. I believe it's because you don't find me attractive. Then you state a feeling. That makes me feel really sad and isolated in this disease. Often in couples, we're really good at those first three things, especially when we're angry. We just can lay those out. You don't touch me anymore. It's because you don't find me attractive and I feel lonely, right? And We often then don't follow up with an action, which would be, it would be really meaningful to me if you would initiate touch more often, or it would be really meaningful to me if you would come to a counseling session with me. Give them an action plan so that they have something to do with the information you've provided, because oftentimes it's they don't know what to do that they're not acting. And similarly with the provider, give them the facts Tell them what you're experiencing. And the best way I find doing this is sitting down and writing it ahead of time and writing down what you're experiencing, even if you think there is no answer, no cure, no solution. Write it down. What's interfering with you living into your best, most joyous sexual self? What's getting in the way of that? Is it the way you view your body? Is it the fatigue? Is it side effects that you're experiencing from the treatment? Is it the anxiety you feel? is it that it's painful or uncomfortable? Write those things down and as you state those facts, if there are any beliefs or feelings attached to them, you can write that in sync with that as well. And the action is going to be a discussion between you and your provider. What are the things that you can do or can't do that might help address those problems? And one of, I think, the best techniques in after writing that is sending it ahead of time to your provider. And your provider might be your physician, it might be a nurse practitioner, or it might be the nurse that's caring for you. And any of those are okay. Who do you trust and feel most comfortable with that you can bring this really sacred conversation forward to start the conversation? Because if the provider hasn't advance, they can then take some time to really think about that and utilize the time that you have together at your next appointment to address that list and if they don't have all the answers, find the people that might. So that might be a referral to a sex therapist. It might be a referral to a gynecologist. It might be a referral to a urologist. It might be a referral to a pelvic floor therapist. There are so many resources out there and other professionals that can address the really common sexual health challenges that our patients face. But if the physician or the nurse isn't aware or the social worker isn't aware you're struggling or isn't aware of what, how it's impacting you, they don't know how to help.
1: That is such a key and important point about sometimes why providers don't bring up these questions in the first place because they don't know. And so, you know, it's one of the key things that I was taught in med school is if you don't have a solution to a problem, it's not necessarily something you should be screening for. But that doesn't work in this situation. So it's really, really, really important for people to bring this to the front in the conversation with their provider and for their provider to take the responsibility to help find resources So what are some resources that you recommend To be
2: totally fair, there are not a plethora of resources. From a care provider standpoint, one of the best things that care providers can do is just when somebody brings this forward to say, that must be really hard. This is a really common thing for patients to experience. Let's find some solutions. And then you've just normalized it. If all we do is normalize and give hope to our patients in the area of sexual health, it is one major thing that it, it will make a massive difference to our patients. There are some concrete resources out there. Ann Katz is a nurse out of Canada who has written a few books related to sexual health and cancer for men and for women. There is a book that I go to for sexual health and women. It's called Sex Matters for Women, written by one of my mentors, Sally Foley, and two other co-authors. There are some professionals out there that have sexual health clinics. Sharon Bober at Dana Farber has a great sexual health clinic. Memorial Sloan Kettering has both female and male sexual medicine programs. There's a program for prostate cancer at University of Michigan. Dr. Stephanie Bueller does some great education online, learnsextherapy.com. There are a couple other clinics out there that are specifically established and understand cancer. Horse Knight Center for Sexual Health is another. So these are in-clinic resources as well as books. For our LGBTQ patients, there's actually a wonderful online resource called the National LGBT Cancer Network, and it's for providers and patients and is a great tool and resource for patients. For young adults, those diagnosed between 18 and 40, stupid cancer remains kind of the go-to place that will get you to other places as well, but also is a great place for providers. And one last would be a book written by a good friend of mine, Dan Shapiro, for couples called And in Health. And it talks about the journey and conversations needed after a cancer diagnosis within a coupleship.
1: Thank you so much. Those are amazing, amazing resources. And I think it's key that it's not just Resources that can be helpful to patients, but also to couples and to providers. In our last few minutes, I'd love to ask you about bite-sized action items. One or two things that someone listening can do today or in the next few days to really think about and address their sexual health or intimacy questions or concerns. So, for
2: those cancer survivors that are listening, I would say first and foremost, give yourself a moment to grieve what was. Because I think oftentimes we're so focused on just getting you through and there's a focus on the end point that we're not even giving you permission to grieve what was lost. And acknowledging that sex may not feel the same as it did before doesn't mean that it won't feel incredible. It just may be different. So grieving what was lost and then embracing what is to come. And that could be making a list for yourself of what was lost, but what is to come, what you hope for. That's really important. Then. Sit down and make a list of your questions or concerns in fact, feeling, belief format. Make a list of what you hope the solutions can be. Initiate a conversation with your partner using the fact, belief, feeling, and action. And then once you have that list, make an appointment with someone you trust to talk about it.
1: Thank you so much. Uh, really appreciate your time, Dr. Bolte. I think it's so helpful to have this discussion, not just around sexual health and wellness, but also around intimacy and how to have these conversations. I think the piece that you're absolutely right, that I'm going to take away with me is when you're having these discussions to have some sort of thought about the action plan too, is so key. I really thank you for that piece of advice.
2: Absolutely.
1: We've talked with Dr. Sage Bolte. To find out more information about Sage Bolte, visit please take a moment to follow, rate, and review this podcast on your favorite podcast listening platform. This will conclude the episode. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you hear, please leave a comment and subscribe. Thank you.